Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, associate professor here at Ashland University, also co-chair of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, this year, if you've joined us before, you know that our webinar series has to do with landmark Supreme Court cases in which we um, pull together some thoughtful scholars uh, to have a, just a conversation about some important uh, Supreme Court cases, and we encourage, as always, encourage those of you joining us to join in that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box, and we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. Um, the subject of today's webinar is Roe v. Wade, which was decided in 1973, and to help us think about this case, we have two very thoughtful scholars. Um, we have uh, David Alvis of Wofford College and John Deenan of Wake Forest University. So again, good morning to both of you and thanks for being here. Um, you guys are veterans of these webinars, so you kind of know how they work. Uh, I'm just going to throw out a couple of big questions that I hope that at some point we'll cover. I'm sure we will. Um, and then let you guys just sort of take it from there and see what you think about this case. But uh, of course, the big overarching question that, um, that I think we want to ultimately um, try to answer today is how this particular decision uh, and the way it's decided, the reasoning of the court, and, the, and the, the fact that this case itself made it before the court, how does this decision affect um, how we should think about the Constitution, about federalism, and about the role of the Supreme Court? So hopefully we'll be able to address those those larger themes, of course, uh, today in our conversation. But maybe to get started, what I thought we'd do is uh, start with the question of how, say from either a political or social perspective, uh, how does this, how and why does this particular case, or a case like this, having to do with abortion, how and why does this case get to the Supreme Court? And in particular, is there something about 1973 or the or that, that era, that historical era, that, that makes it more likely that a case like this would get before the Supreme Court. Um, anybody I'm glad. John, go right ahead, please. Just jump sure, in. sure. I'll, I'll kick that off. And, and I suppose I mentioned two things in particular. One is what's going on in regard to abortion developments in particular. And that is that for many years, abortion laws around the country really did look a lot like the Texas law that in most states abortion was not permitted in most cases. And then we get to the early 1960s and some states begin adding exceptions. They say, oh, in certain cases in which the, the woman's health would be at risk, a doctor could certify an abortion could be obtained. And then in the late 1960s and the very early 1970s, you start to see some states, New York State was a leading one, several states out west, that would actually go much farther and would start to say, actually on their own, the state legislatures would say, actually abortions can be performed any time up for the first 24 weeks of pregnancy, for instance. And so the first thing to be noted is, is that in the half decade prior to Roe versus Wade actually being decided, 
actually states were debating this issue, and there was a good amount of discussion in the medical community and in state legislatures itself. So that's one thing. It's no surprise that, as Tocqueville would say, uh, a number of political issues eventually work their way into the courts. The second thing I would mention is jurisprudentially. The court uh, in the mid-1960s had taken a case concerning a Connecticut birth control uh, statute, which prohibited sale of birth control, and the court in that case had allowed um, uh, uh, the jurisprudential doctrine to be read in such a way as to prohibit Connecticut or other states from prohibiting sales of contraceptives. So there was some jurisprudential movement along with some political movement, particularly on the abortion front, and that comes together in Roe v. Wade in 1973. One thing I would add to that as well is also to the uh, one social movement that provides a lot of context to this case and that is 1973 constitutes really the culmination of the uh, women's movement, uh, greater demand uh, for um, uh, equal protection uh, for women and also, too, for uh, 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 women's individual autonomy. And uh, and at the same time, right, also you have the um, uh, advocacy of the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA. So 1973 really is I mean, part of the issue of abortion also, too, is the culmination of this women's movement. And so the, uh, a lot of the lawyers involved in these various cases, including Roe v. Wade, um, if you look at the involvement of uh, Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey in bringing this case uh, to the Supreme Court, um, they are leaders in the, uh, uh, in the women's movement. And so this is symbolically seen as a, uh, as a, as a culmination of that, uh, of that social movement. Both great sort of overviews of, uh, of the sort of historical context of the case. So just a quick follow-up, I guess, uh, John, for you uh, quickly. Uh, are you saying that the Texas law, the Texas law, if I understood it correctly, it, it prohibits abortion, but it does make an exception in cases in which the, the mother's uh, life is in jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. That was that, yes, that was the standard form of the laws is that abortion was generally prohibited except for the life of the mother. In that case, you had the life of the unborn versus the life of a mother at stake, and the laws of Texas and other states permitted in that case abortion to be conducted. What began to be happening in the early 1960s is is that they began adding, say, a woman's health exception, which was distinct from the woman's life exception, and that there would say, oh, it would be it would be affecting uh, the health of the woman to go forward with this in a certain case, and so that began to broaden things in that way. But the Texas law was was really um, not out of the norm for for a number of states at that point. Yeah, that was my question. I guess it it, it, it was not. I mean, it was pretty typical. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Good. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think, you know, statistically about, I think it was about 36, 37 states uh, banned the practice altogether, right, except when the life of the mother was in jeopardy. But many states were beginning to liberalize their uh, abortion laws. Um, and one particular exception, that, one particular formulation that they were using that had come from the American Medical Association was that there could be an exception for the health of the mother, uh, cases of rape, and also to the phys- potential physical deformity uh, of the of the fetus. And so, you know, uh, one of the companion cases to Roe v. Wade was Gold, Doe versus Bolton, 
And Georgia had that formulation, um, and that was, you know, you could make those three exceptions, health of the mother, um, the um, uh, cases of rape, and also to uh, physical deformity or mental deformity of the uh, fetus. I think if I could just jump in on that, I think that's why as, as people reacted to Roe v. Wade at the time it was issued, and as other people, such as now Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, reacted to Roe v. Wade in the years after that, the, the, the point that's, that we're stressing here to a great degree is that states were debating abortion legislation prior to the court stepping in in Roe v. Wade. Some states were reacting to events. There was a particular uh, uh, medication the number of women were taking that uh, contained thalidomide. And they didn't realize it at the time, and so that led later leading to deformities. And so some state legislatures responded to that and allowing uh, liberalization, as David said, of abortion. And so there was a lot of activity going on, a lot of debate in state legislatures. And the one notable thing about Roe versus Wade is, is that when it came down is, it came down a decision which that debate was ongoing in state legislatures, and I won't say that debate stopped in state legislatures, or certainly didn't stop, but that debate was dramatically transformed by what the court decided in Roe v. Wade, thereby dramatically constraining what state legislatures could do after 1973. Can we say something about how the case sort of got to the court in light of these things? It's a, it's a, it's a complicated case because there are actually three parties, right, to the case. And, 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 and part of the decision of the court has to do with whether or not the, uh, the parties had standing and so on and so forth. But can we say something about how, in light of these laws that you're, that you're describing, John and David, the case actually made it through the court system to the Supreme Court? Yeah, it's, it, it, has a, it has a very complicated history, and I, I, I admit that I've never really been able to master all of the elements. Um, there, there were essentially, for this case, there had been three cases um, uh, going forward. One, um, one involved a, a married couple from, uh, known as Dovey Bolton. Uh, one involved a married couple who uh, didn't... Um, the, uh, there are, they, did, they were a childless couple who uh, did not necessarily, did not intend to have children, and their argument was that um, by the Georgia law, which deprived them of the, right, uh, the ability to choose an abortion, um, the argument was that the, the wife in the particular case uh, had been warned by a doctor that if she became pregnant, it would be very dangerous to her health. And so her, the argument there in the Dovey Bolton case was that Georgia's law prohibiting them from getting an abortion except in certain medical circumstances and with the uh, consultation of at least, I think it was three physicians, their argument was to deprive them of uh, marital happiness because then they had to fear the possibility of, uh, of getting pregnant and not being able to uh, do anything about that. So that was the, the case in Dovey Bolton. The case in Roe v. Wade, of course, involved uh, uh, famously Norma McCorvey, uh, who um, in this case was uh, assisted by two rather famous people, uh, Linda Coffey and Sarah, uh, more, more importantly, Sarah Weddington, um, who were uh, very much uh, involved in the national debate over abortion. And so, her, uh, uh, again, her case, 
during the, the lower court decisions, she was, uh, she was pregnant and she, she could not get an abortion because the, um, the problem would be that if she did, then her case would become moot. And so she had to give up the, having the abortion in order to, uh, in, in order to keep her case, uh, in order to be able to gain standing. So you can only gain standing if you potentially could um, receive a direct injury um, by uh, the court. Has to, you have to be able to prove that you, you, you have a potentially direct injury. And so the complication in Roe v. Wade was that because the period of gestation is nine months, you know, at some point in the appellate process, you're no longer going to be pregnant. And so the question becomes, well, then is your case moot and you don't have standing uh, in court? And that becomes one of the major issues in, uh, in, in, the, in the Supreme Court case in, in, in Roe v. Wade. The, fu the final third party to the case is uh, a doctor named, uh, I believe, James Holleran, um, who uh, had been actually convicted uh, or sorry, yes, had been convicted under Texas law for assisting in uh, a, a couple of abortions um, uh, under the uh, Texas statute. And so he actually had a, uh, a case, he was seeking not only a declaratory judgment against the abortion laws in Texas, but he's also in seeking what is called injunctive relief from the prosecutions uh, that he's, uh, he's under prosecution in Texas. So those are the three cases, and what happens is, is that in, 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 in its pathway from the district court uh, to, the, um, uh, to the Supreme Court, um, the, they, in Roe v. Wade, they win on the issue of declaratory judgment, that is, a, a judgment by the court uh, declaring the Texas law unconstitutional. But what they don't win is they don't win the injunctive uh, relief uh, from the pro from prosecution or potential prosecution. And so that's part of the issue that's involved in the Supreme Court case. Essentially, the, the Doe and the physicians um, uh, cases are, 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 how do you put this, thrown out by the court or just or Yeah, the, the Doe. That's right. The Do, in, the, in the Doe case, right, the argument, they, they are denied, uh, essentially denied standing, uh, mostly because they, their claims are speculative rather than direct injury. And um, also, too, the, um, it, it, by, by the complicated rules of standing, the doctors or the physicians' uh, case is also uh, denied standing because of the, um, uh, just because of the particular legal issues that are involved in, in this particular case. So the, it ends up that Roe v. Wade is a famous case primarily because it's the only one that uh, is granted standing in the particular case and then uh, is able to move on for a, for a decision uh, by the Supreme Court. So, so the opinions handed down, and, and I think in the selection for today uh, we have we have um, the majority opinion, a concurring opinion, and I think Rehnquist dissent. Right. Um, those opinions all deal with the with the specifics of the Doe case, right? Roe. The Roe. The Roe. Case, Roe case. Yeah, that's that, that 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 that's right. And so there are some other opinions in there. The two dissenters in here were Justice White and Justice Rehnquist, that's and, right. and 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 so we get to see Justice Rehnquist's uh, dissent here in that sense. And I, I expect we can get into that a little bit more. But perhaps we're going to get into the the particulars of the majority opinion, I guess, before we get into the dissents, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, well, we can do it either way, John, however you want to do it. I mean, I, I'd like to work through uh, the majority opinion yeah, let's, and, let's, and the reasoning behind it because yeah. I think that I've had a couple of questions that have to do with, you know, the, the particular reasonings uh, given and how that reasoning, again, affects um, the court's understanding of, yeah, of yeah, privacy yeah. rights in particular yeah, uh, yeah. and where they're found in the Constitution. Uh, but I'd also like to talk a little bit, if, you, if, you, if you'd like, uh, either of you, about the sort of composition of the court at the time in the 1970s, and even maybe what was, what was sort of public expectation um, uh, regarding what they thought the court would do with this case was, uh, in light of the sort of composition of the court. Yeah. David, were you jumping? Uh, yeah. No, you got it. I mean, the court is in some flux, and the key is is that the the Warren Court, the heyday of the Warren Court, which had issued a number of decisions, particularly in the later years of the Warren Court, so named after Chief Justice Earl Warren in the 1960s, um, had really been expanding the boundaries of interpretation of various provisions of the Bill of Rights in a number of ways in criminal procedure, in, 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 in terms of questions of religious expression, we could go all this. So, so the Warren Court, uh, very, very willing to read Bill of Rights provisions expansively. The one thing we'd say, though, is, is that after Richard Nixon's election in 1968, uh, we started to get some, some new appointments, and that included the appointments of Justice Blackman, who writes the uh, majority opinion in this case, and uh, Justice Rehnquist as well, who would be one of the dissenters in this case, would also include Justice Powell, exactly, who, would, who would not be writing in this case, but would side with the majority in that case. So I guess the best way to put it is, is that up through the late 1960s, the court was very expansive in its readings. We start to see, though, in the early 1970s, in a number of other areas of law, not on Roe versus Wade, but in another of other areas of law, we start to see a bit of a pulling back from some of the expansive readings that the Warren Court had given, in part as a result of some of the new appointees that Richard Nixon had been placed on the bench. What's striking is that Roe v. Wade is the exception to that pullback in other areas. In a wide variety of other areas, in criminal procedure cases, uh, the rank, the, 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 and, and of course, uh, I, I miss the perhaps most important, Chief Justice Warren Burger is now on the court as well. So it's no longer the Warren Court, it's now the Burger Court. And so in the Burger Court, a number of other areas in the early 1970s was beginning to revisit, pull back on, trim slightly some of the expansive readings of the Warren Court. This Roe versus Wade would be decidedly not of that kind. In fact, it would go much farther than the Warren Court had ever gone. I think there's also, too, a, a interesting um, argument in terms of the court's uh, jurisprudence uh, that's building up here in 1973 that I think explains also, too, partly why the decision in Roe v. Wade is, is so controversial. Um, so it, you know, we tend to think of it as, well, that's the, the abortion decision. But there's also, too, a major fallout in terms of uh, perceptions of the role of the court and the American legal system and uh, the, court, the future of the court's uh, uh, jurisprudence after, uh, after this particular case. So, I mean, I, I want to point out, right, that that, you know, a lot of people who, on the one hand, would have uh, been sympathetic to the protection of an abortion right also had serious reservations about the way the court decided this case uh, in 1973. So just to give a little bit of that background, so the, uh, 
the court, um, in, in the, by 1973, the court had abandoned uh, what was known as a, uh, a sort of doctrine of um, substantive due process, um, meaning that um, substantive due process uh, typically focused around the application of the due process clause in the 14th Amendment uh, that protects um, individual citizens and their uh, life, liberty, and, and property. And um, there, there had been a famous case in 1908, uh, the, uh, some people know it as the Baker's case, um, in 1908, where the court um, uh, declared unconstitutional a law in New York regulating the hours that bakers could work. And they argued that this was a, a violation of an individual's right to contract under the 14th Amendment and the Due Process Clause of Life, Liberty, and Property. Well, that became very controversial over the course of the 20th century. In fact, now uh, most uh, law school professors would refer to that as the infamous Lochner decision. And the court eventually uh, abandoned that jurisprudence, declaring that it will never sit as a super legislature over the acts of uh, state legislatures over, or over the federal legislature. So the court had reeled back from asserting this, what was known as a sort of substantive due process. Um, and declared that, you know, from now on, it, it will avoid making, you know, these kind of assertions, uh, except maybe in cases that involve uh, race. Well, what begins to happen, right, in the 60s with, uh, as John mentioned, cases uh, like Griswold v. Connecticut, or another case called Eisenstadt v. Bayer, is the court begins to develop a right to privacy. Um, it develops the argument that contained in the Bill of Rights, if you add them all together and include the, the Ninth Amendment, that, that in, the, in the shadow of the uh, Bill of Rights, we find this right to privacy. And so it had started to strike down uh, state laws uh, li uh, limiting people's access to contraceptives under that law. So what becomes the big issue in Roe v. Wade is on what grounds are you going to determine uh, whether or not a woman has the right uh, to an abortion? Is it going to, uh, the, the privacy right allows you uh, a way of making a case for that, right? Just as uh, you shouldn't regulate people's access to contraceptives because that's a, uh, a matter of a private choice. Um, so, too, you can't regulate uh, abortion because that's uh, a woman's private choice. And that would allow you to avoid the issue, uh, a return to the old doctrine of substantive due process. But the, the, the problem is not all justices really felt comfortable with this right to privacy because it wasn't very clear that this was in the, uh, in the Constitution. On the other hand, if you base it on the 14th Amendment, then it looks like now you've got the return back to this very controversial uh, claim of substantive due process. So throughout the, appellate, uh, throughout the lower court decisions, they're struggling with exactly how to frame or articulate uh, the, uh, uh, the issue of abortion in terms of rights. Jordan, in the majority opinion, goes, he comes in, correct me if I'm wrong, David, he comes down on the the right to privacy is there somewhere via the 14th and the 9th Amendment. Is that right? Can, can, I, can I just yes. a quote from the? I'll just quote from the opinion on that because it's quite significant. 
the, the court says its majority opinion, this right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, as we feel it is, or as the district court determined in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. You can see the sense of, even in the writing, they say, well, we could find it here, and that's where we're going to locate it, but you could possibly find it here, as the district court did. It doesn't actually seem to be a matter of great concern for the justices where actually in the Constitution this can be located. They, they, they discuss it, but for many people afterwards and reacting to it, this was a matter of great concern and discussion. They said, this is a constitutional law issue. This is a question of constitutional interpretation. First and foremost, what exactly, what provisions are we interpreting in the Constitution? Um, you can see that's how they came down on it. And they basically, they said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll locate it here, but you could probably find it here. Um, you can imagine why scholars and critics of the decision took issue with that, um, with, with that and, and actually at the least pressed for much more argumentation and much more constitutional interpretation and argumentation. At one point, Blackman even says that I'm, I, I would feel comfortable finding it in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. But what that does is it suddenly raises the question, wait a minute, is the court going to get back into the business of acting as a super legislature, right, um, striking down state laws under its conception of what constitutes uh, liberty? So his attempt in some ways to be ambiguous about exactly what the court is doing sort of leads to an explosion over the question, well, wait a minute, what now, now what is the role of the court, right? Is it simply um, to, uh, is it to act as a super legislature uh, over uh, state, state and federal laws, or in, it, will it defer uh, to state legislatures and to the federal legislature uh, as long as the uh, federal and state legislature abide by certain pr uh, procedures. So this, I mean, this really leads to a huge controversy over that. Let me just, I know we're going to get into this in some of our later discussion, but I already saw some questions that have come up in our, uh, among some of the participants. And, and one is in relating to, well, is Roe versus Wade a unique case or are there any parallels to this? And let me just take this opportunity to draw out one parallel in regard to the way we're talking about. And that is the Supreme Court's same-sex marriage decision in Obergefell of several years ago, in which the Supreme Court struck down all the laws of states that would restrict uh, the, the ability for same-sex marriages to be performed and recognized. Well, there was much discussion in the lead up to the Obergefell decision as well. Well, where exactly would this right to same-sex marriage would be located? And some people located in the due process clause. Some people located in the equal protection clause. And in a similar way that reaction to the Roe versus Wade decision and the, regarding abortion centered on questions about where exactly is this right found in the Constitution, somewhat similar decisions and discussions greeted the Obergefell decision regarding recognition of a right to same-sex marriage. That is, where, where exactly would we find this in the Constitution? Um, there's various provisions that you might find it in. Uh, the court essentially seemed to find it in the due process clause, but others found it in other clauses. That would be at least one parallel to draw out about continuing ways in which the Roe versus Wade decision and reaction to it actually has parallels in some more recent decisions as well. Ultimately, say decisively, here's exactly where this is, this right to privacy is located in the Constitution. 
how can they go on then to decide the case? They move on to other reasons, or reasonings about uh, you know the, the social effects of, of abortion, economic effects, even psychological effects, and then the, of course they move into the area of trying to determine the, to find the balance between the the state's interest in protecting the life of the of the of the unborn versus the uh, I guess health or, or life of the mother. Um, but it's, it's, it is, correct me if I'm wrong, they are glossing over this a little bit, right, so that they can then proceed to decide or try to determine some kind of criteria by which to decide when, uh, in what kinds of cases abortion should, should in fact be uh, legal, right? Or am I wrong about that? Well, there's, there's, there's at least several key paragraphs, and, and for me, it's under Roman numeral eight of the opinion, the opinion, the majority opinion when it goes down here and it organizes things, and when folks are reading back through the opinion and the materials that were made available for, for this session. Roman numeral eight is a crucial one because they go through in a, in a first paragraph, and they, say, they explicitly say the Constitution does not explicitly mention any right of privacy. So they go on and say that. But then they go on and they piece together about two dozen different cases, which they say, well, but we have recognized some privacy in the context of the First Amendment in terms of free expression. And haven't we recognized some zone of privacy in regard to the Fourth Amendment, in regard to search and seizure? And haven't we recognized this in other, as David already mentioned, penumbras, that is shadows being cast out of other provisions? And so they, they piece together a citation to about two dozen different cases, and they say, yes, it's true that the Constitution doesn't specifically mention right to privacy, but haven't we in our cases before recognized some zone of privacy? And then at that point they go on to say, and so we're, if, whether we find this in the 14th Amendment, whether we find it in the 9th Amendment, it's, it, it, it's in some ways they're showing we're actually exercising continuity with prior decisions. So the majority argues uh, by, by casting a very broad net to the concept of privacy, and they're saying we're just acting in that in continuity with uh, with with those that have come before us. As you say, they handle that issue, and then they go on to some other matters. A lot of other people might have wanted a little more discussion and argument um, to really kind of hammer down that point. But for the court, they were ready to move on to other points. Okay, uh, that's great, John. And on that point, uh, Brian and. And a few others are asking if, if you or David can mention again some of the cases that you cited that they used to piece together the right to privacy. Sure, uh, I'll, I'll step in. I don't want to do dominate. I'll, I'll give David, but for instance, they decided in regard to whether or not states could prohibit private schools back in the 1920s. Could you prohibit people from going to Catholic schools in that sense? And they said, well, well, no. There's a right there. How about the uh, the cases of uh, uh, they recognized Terry versus Ohio and Katz versus United States concerning questions such as stopping and searching people or wiretapping. And so these would, I could go on, and David might have some others to, to add as well, but these are the types of cases they said, we have recognized privacy in the context, and therefore we recognize privacy in this context as well. So the Terry v. Ohio case, the, the Katz case? Katz, I would say. Uh, uh, they, uh, and some of the cases, sometimes they would actually cite to dissenters in some, some other decisions as well and say, well, haven't some dissenters? You're always on stronger ground when you're citing to, to majority opinions. But the question such as the Katz case would be a leading one concerning electronic eavesdropping, for instance. Yeah, and also, too, the, the other big one that they cite, because this comes back up in the later cases like Obergefell, 
is uh, Loving v. Virginia, yeah, right, which yeah. struck down the uh, anti-miscegenation laws yeah, yeah. In, in Virginia. So, any, any, you know, you, you can find a variety of cases for the, from the First Amendment to the Fourth Amendment's uh, protections against search and seizure, um, to the uh, Ninth Amendment's um, uh, reservations that, that, that the uh, Constitution should not be, the Bill of Rights should not be construed to deny that there are other rights. You know, in, in all cases in, in involving these, uh, these various protections, the argument is there's a sort of shadow of uh, right, the right to privacy in, the, in, each of those, in each of those cases. Go ahead, Chris. There were a couple of, uh, actually two or three questions, uh, interesting questions that have to do with some of the um, grounds upon which uh, a Blackman bases uh, his, his, his decision. So for example, um, uh, let's see, um, I think it was Billy brought, mentioned the distinction between the right to privacy and what, what let's see if I can find it, uh, the idea of a right to life, right? Uh, yeah. 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 A fundamental right within the Declaration of Independence, and the court doesn't seem to, to want to touch that, right? Well, it, it's interesting kind of, I mean, how Blackman approaches that in, in this particular case. So I, I, mean, I think this is really kind of where both the issue, the, the controversial nature of the abortion question comes together with the uh, controversial nature of the privacy right. So the, um, the argument of, of Blackman in this particular case is that the, the right to, uh, uh, that uh, um, the, the question right of life, right, potential life uh, versus the right to choose abortion is he, he does not say this is an, there is any absolute answer to this question. In fact, he says in the case, fortunately, we don't have to answer the question, when does life begin? Rather, there, he tries to suggest that there could be a middle ground. And also, when it comes to the privacy argument, his argument is the privacy right here is not absolute. There actually can be a middle ground between the compelling interests of the state uh, and the individual rights uh, of the woman. And so that's why you get this trimester framework. The argument is that in the first trimester, you don't, you don't have a potential life question. So the question would simply be, is there a, uh, a police power reason for the state to intervene, you know, health, safety, uh, health or safety concerns? And the argument is no, uh, abortions in the first trimester are relatively safe. There's no real reason for the state to intervene. Then you get the second trimester, right? This, there, there are more potential health concerns, but there is not a potential life concern. So at this point, the state can intervene for health and safety reasons, but it cannot uh, intervene on behalf of potential life. And then the argument is, is that in the third trimester, right, beginning somewhere around 28 weeks, maybe 24 weeks, somewhere right around there, um, 28 weeks, I think, for his purposes, the, um, there you get viability. That is the potential of the fetus to live outside the uh, womb, uh, potentially on artificial life support, but nevertheless to live outside the womb. And at that point, the state can intervene on grounds not of health and safety, but of potential life, as long as it makes provisions for the health of the mother. 
So the trimester framework is designed actually to be a sort of middle ground between these competing claims, right, on the one hand that there's potential life, on the other hand of the right uh, of the woman uh, to be able to choose to terminate the pregnancy. So in some ways, right, this is kind of a big issue that people often miss and row because it's generally symbolically associated with the right uh, to abortion, but in fact, Blackman's opinion both on the privacy issue and on the life issue, tries to formulate a, a middle ground. And it becomes, the big question, I think, with Roe is how workable that framework becomes in, in future years. Can I just uh, just add, uh, pick up with one thing that Dave was saying, and that is that I always think there's, there's three key issues that the Supreme Court had to overcome to issue the Roe versus Wade decision. First of all, they had to find a right to privacy somewhere in the Constitution. We've discussed for the last few minutes or so how, how they did that. But then there was a second move they had to make, and that was, as Dave was mentioned, some people came back and said, well, aren't, isn't a fetus a person and therefore protected under the 14th Amendment? And so they had to then overcome that argument, the majority did. And they overcame that by saying, well, I, yes, you could make that argument that a fetus is a person and therefore protected under the, the, the specific mention that persons are entitled to rights under the 14th Amendment and other places. But they said they clearly rejected that point. And they said, when we look at when this, the Constitution refers to persons in other contexts, other than the 14th Amendment, it seems pretty clear it's, it's, it's referring to people after they've been born. And so they clearly reject that. They say, at the end of the day, we've concluded the word person is used in the 14th Amendment does not include the unborn. So that's how they dispose of that second obstacle. And then there's that third obstacle that David was getting at. Well, how about, suppose a person is not personhood uh, would extend to fetal, to fetuses, but how about just Texas's general belief that life begins at conception? How to deal battle with that? And that's where, as Dave was saying, this, this other point, they actually say, well, we don't have to resolve that. Yes, there's a lot of debate about that, but we'll, we, um, we, we won't resolve that. We'll just say there's competing interests. And so in, in, in working through the case, there's other obstacles that have to be overcome, but that's one of the ways I view it. There's three different points they had to get through, and if they failed on any of those three, they couldn't have issued the decision they had. And that's one way of, of analyzing things. So, and, but, uh, did, go ahead, David, please. Well, let me just add, let add to that as, as well. I mean, that's really that's very helpful in framing the, 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 why the decision is written the way that it does. And, and in fact, the, the, the parties, right, the argument, the oral arguments and the, the case race made in the case um, on both sides actually did have a complex problem that they had to address, but it wasn't an easy case for either side. So from the side of Roe, um, one of the things, the, the Roe side was reluctant to make the argument of an absolute privacy right because the problem was some of the most liberalized states like New York on abortion laws did um, have a limit and that was a, about a 24, 25 week limit. Yeah. Um, and, and after that point, they, the, even the most liberal states said, we can intervene, right, um, uh, on matters of potential life at that 24-week period. So the, 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 the Roe side didn't want to argue that you not, not only do you have to overturn Texas's law, but you've got to turn even the most liberal uh, uh, states' uh, laws when it comes to uh, the uh, right to an abortion. And they, um, on the other side, right, on the uh, side of Texas, the, the Texas side was reluctant to make the argument 
under the 14th Amendment that a fetus was uh, a person um, and therefore protected under the 14th Amendment law. Because in that case, then, if you took that position, well, then wouldn't you have to punish women who uh, terminated their pregnancy uh, under manslaughter laws, right? And they were reluctant to make that argument. So in some ways, what Blackman thinks that he's doing is kind of resolving all of these tensions in a way that everyone can accept. Um, there are a couple of, again, several good questions uh, that I thought we'd get to. I'm trying to find some that might build naturally on what we've just been discussing. Um, there are a couple of actually that maybe we can piece together. Uh, one from Larry, who, who notes that the court really seems to want to focus on, again, on legal, uh, legal or constitutional uh, solutions to this question rather than bring moral questions into it. Um, which I think uh, Blackman makes pretty clear right at the beginning of the opinion, right? Because uh, by bringing, by making this a moral issue, it, it tends to get the passions uh, aroused, and, and he wants to, he wants, he says he wants to answer this question or decide this case dispassionately. Then there was another comment. Um, let's see, where was this? Uh, Anthony meant, notes that the the case shows how the courts use precedent instead of natural law. Uh, he asks if, if that's an issue in our system as a whole. That's a big question. Right, but I, I just mentioned it in part to, to note that um, uh, by not bringing natural law into it, it seems as though, well, bringing natural law into a case like this, it seems to me that you would have to necessarily go down the road of asking, of considering this from a moral perspective, which may or may not be why, again, the court decided not to do so, although I would probably, probably would both uh, point out that uh, at this point in the in the in the life of the court, natural law doesn't play much of a role in anything. Yeah, um, it, yeah I'm, it, I mean, on the on, it, it's clearly that issue, right? The, the the moral question that that Blackman says, look, we can avoid that question. We don't have to answer this question of when does human life begin, right? And therefore, we can offer a uh, clear. Um, legal answer to the question without, without, you know, without having to insert ourselves in the middle of a moral controversy. I mean, that's, that's his big claim, right, about this decision. And I think you have to raise two questions about that. Number one, that is certainly not the fallout of this decision, that the court just answered a legal question and didn't insert itself into a moral claim. I mean, everyone's perception after this case is, is that this is an answer for better or worse to a moral question. Um, so you really kind of wonder in terms of the politically whether or not uh, Blackman's opinion was very successful in its, in its aim to be legal and not moral. Um, and then the second thing is, is that I, I actually doubt that uh, as an argument anyway in the case. And that is, his argument is, we don't have to answer the question when human life begins. Rather, right, he offers the trimester framework and leaves that question up to the states. Well, the, the problem is not really, because by the, the trimester framework, you can't intervene for potential life in the first trimester. Therefore, you cannot maintain that, uh, that, uh, conception, uh, that uh, life begins at conception. 
nor could you maintain that life begins in the 14 to 28 week period. Rather, the only time you could maintain a potential life claim would be in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, in the third trimester. So the thing is, is that his claim is he's not addressing the moral issue, but the legal argument certainly does make a moral claim about uh, at least when, uh, when potential life begins. So I'm, I'm not so sure that it's successful either terms, in terms of the perception of the way that the decision uh, was received, nor is the argument itself in the case persuasive on that, on that particular issue. Always a little bit struck at how little the court relies on, say, scientific understandings of when, for example, life begins. I mean, he mentions it, right? But doesn't doesn't Blackman kind of dismiss that and say again, that's we don't ultimately have to base our decision in this case on a scientific understanding of, of when life actually begins. Uh, I do know that the court uses the term viability, which yeah, becomes yeah. or had been actually kind of the standard for how you think about this. The question is, at what point does the does the baby uh, does, I guess the term is viable. Is that another way of asking at what point does the does the life of the baby or does, does the baby become a person? I'm not sure how to think about that term viability that the court throws around here. Yeah, I mean the the, the term goes. I think the term. I I, I I'm, I've read through his historical um, uh, treatment of the science of this a number of times, and I'm I'm not entirely clear. On how he arrives at the at the the viability issue, but it, it appears to be analogous or maybe the same as this long historical discussion of quickening, right? Um, and the um, uh, at, at the point right at which right there can be self motion in the fetus, right? There was the, the argument, you know, historically had been that this is the this is. Uh, the moment, right, that the uh, fetus becomes what you call ensouled. That is, it, it has a soul, it becomes a, a human being. Now, there had always been kind of arguments about this historically, um, but he seems to be relying upon, and, and, and actually some laws had made a distinction between um, uh, a fetus that had been post-quickening versus uh, pre-quickening. So he seems to be relying upon something like that as the standard for uh, viability. But viability in this case, I think, becomes more the scientific fact that uh, at some point the fetus, right, the, the fetus can survive outside of the womb. The, the biggest problem with it is, is that his trimester framework has a very clear uh, sort of uh, 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 timed framework, right? I would say something like one to 14 weeks on the first trimester, 14 to 28 on the second, and then 28 uh, to, to birth on the, on, the, um, on the third trimester framework. But the criteria for the third trimester is viability. But what we've discovered, right, is that viability is not now 28 weeks, but it, you know, it, even by 1973, it had moved uh, to around 24 to 22, and it looks even earlier, right, with mo as, as modern sci as scientific methods, I mean, I'm sorry, as modern technology has developed. So the problem is, is that it was supposed to be kind of a fixed framework, and it actually looks now kind of like a moving target. 
I wanted to actually ask you both if, if you have any thoughts on that historical section of the of the majority opinion. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's in some ways, although it's, as you both pointed out, it's clear that, that, that Blackman is trying to avoid certain kinds of approaches to the question. He does. He talks about ancient views. He brings up the the, the possibility of using the Hippocratic Oath as an argument against abortion. He, he talks about uh, British common law, English common law, and um, somebody posted a question. Uh, see if I can find it. it. May have been Billy. Uh, where was this? Uh, this is about the viability of the trimester framework. This, it was actually from Larry about he noticed that the the, the quote in the majority opinion, uh, the passage about a large segment of the Protestant community which held the issue as a matter for the conscience of the individual and her family. Um, so he talks about you know the the sort of evolution of Christian views, in particular religious views, but in particular Christian views on this question. So. Uh, Larry asked, what was the evolution of change in the views of those churches? That's a really big question. I don't know if either of you want to touch that. Um, but in general, I was just wondering what you thought about this sort of historical section uh, of the opinion, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, let, well, let me just add, add, add to the question for, for John, because I, here I really don't know. I mean, his argument seems to be that these laws, the, the restrictive abortion laws, emerge as a sort of product of Victorian social morality. And I, I, I've actually, I, I don't know the history on this, and so I've always kind of wondered about the, the accuracy of those, uh, of those claims. Yeah. I mean, I would just say in the, that this becomes crucial in terms of how Blackman gets to his viability cutoff point. I mean, that's ultimately where Blackman, the key part of the, of the holding of the decision is states prior to Roe versus Wade could ban abortion prior to the point of fetal viability after Roe versus Wade and as a result of Blackman's decisions, um, uh, they, they may not do so. I mean, that's the crux of the decision and the main change. And so crucial for that is how does he end up with this beginning of end of the second trimester, which he equates with viability as this key point. And that's for me where a lot of the historical part of the decision is coming in for him is he's trying to say, yes, uh, this actually has some basis. It's not just uh, that I've come up here and set up this trimester system and I, I worked in my chambers and came out with this and decided that the only point that you could, if you wanted to as a state, prohibit abortions altogether was after viability. He said, isn't that essentially what we've been, what we find in some other historical laws and traditions, the notion of quickening, as Dave was mentioning. So in short, he's, he's not on legal grounds here. He's, he's, he's working on, on historical grounds and trying to marshal support for his ultimate idea that the key part of the holding is, is that life uh, cannot be, um, we're, gonna under, we're not going to resolve the question where life begins, but in piecing together what various communities have held, even religious communities, what laws have been passed by states, and looking at medicine, we're going to identify viability, fetal viability, outside of the mother as the point at which states could first begin to ban abortions. That's where that becomes relevant for me. Yeah, I guess I was, I was really struck by the, the claim um, I'll, I'll admit I had not read this opinion very carefully before, but I was struck at, at, at the claim Blackman makes. The conclusion he draws from the historical accounts, as you were just saying, John, looking back, the conclusion he draws is that in today's 
in, in, in the 1970s, um, and, and especially post sort of Victorian era, um, we have a much more, uh, what's, how does, I forget how he puts it. I don't, um, uh, women, women used to, women used to enjoy a greater right to, to, uh, to privacy and greater freedom to choose, uh, have an abortion on And we today have a stricter understanding of when life begins than we did in, in, say, pre-late 18th century, 19th century times, right? So I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, you know that's 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 he he does spend a good amount of time. One might say he spends more time on that than locating where the right to abortion is found in the U.S. Constitution. One might say, uh, which is why some folks reacted to this decision in some of the ways that they did. Why it generated so much controversy in law schools among legal scholars is they read all these other parts, but they actually found much more extensive discussions about this historical analysis. And, faith communities and other laws um, than, than, than the legal grounding for, for what he came up with. Fascinating. Candy submitted a question, not, I mean, it was a little ways back, and I'm trying to remember what the context was, but her question is, is it possible to, I'm trying to remember what we were discussing at the time, but is it possible that the court didn't want to jump backward to the question, I guess, of the psychological, psychological capacity of a woman as was done in Buck v. Bell. Um, I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with that case, which uh, would take away the right to choose from a, from a person. And would that get to the heart of the 14th Amendment question? Um, I'm trying to remember the context in which that question was submitted uh, in, in terms of our conversation. But, but we do have several questions. And part, yeah. part of the reason I raise that is people want to go back and, and ask more questions, apparently, about this right to privacy thing. Where is this? Because it seems like some people aren't satisfied with where the court is on this or where the, the court locates us. So um, somebody submitted a question, uh, could the right to privacy be made an amendment or yeah. is it one already? And I guess, that's, I guess that's their way of asking you yeah. guys what you really think. Is the right to privacy actually there already? Let me jump in on that and, and, and see what David has to add as well. I mean, this is, is in some ways the, the heart of the reaction to the decision. We have now today, and pe as people analyze how to interpret the Constitution, we have one school of thought, which would be kind of the living Constitution school of thought. And then there were another school of thought that would have been associated with Robert Bork, with various others, that would be talking about strict interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, some would, in that uh, second camp, would be say we should interpret the Constitution according to its original understanding. This Roe versus Wade would, in these debates, generally be seen as standing as item number one of an example of the living constitution theory of interpretation. That is, the folks in the second camp, those would be the strict construction camp, original meeting camp, they would say, look, how should judges approach a contested constitutional question of interpretation? They ought to say, is there a firm grounding for this claimed right in the text of the Constitution? If we don't see this firmly, clearly in the text of the Constitution or in the understanding of those who drafted the provisions, we ought to leave things to the political process to work its way out. Let state legislatures continue to decide what should be the proper boundaries, when should abortion be allowed and when should it be not. 
So that'd be the one school of thought generally associated with the critics of the Roe versus Wade decision. Their criticism is, we're just not persuaded that you grounded this firmly in the Constitution. And wherever there's a doubt, at least about that, you ought to defer to the political process. And if the people, if legislators will will reach their own decisions, Texas might reach a different decision than New York had reached, and then California would reach. Texas might reach a different decision in 1979 than it reached in 1973. It might evolve for that. Um, and if you really want to proclaim this in a national way so that there's no state variations, you amend the Constitution. We have the 28th Amendment, you would say. And you would say the Constitution now includes a right to privacy, which is broad enough to guarantee a woman's right to obtain an abortion in the following ways, is broad enough to encompass a right to same-sex marriage. That would be how you would handle things. The living Constitution approach, though, this first approach that could be seen as embodied in Justice Blackman's decision is, no, we don't have to be um, have firm certainty that something was intended to be a right. We can piece things together. It's very difficult to amend the Constitution, this first group says. If you waited for an amendment to the Constitution to come about, there'd be a lot of people that might not have their rights fully protected. It's the role of judges. Uh, the role of judges, particularly on the Supreme Court, to sometimes step in and expand the meanings of rights that might be only there in vague fashion or only in, in, in some kind of general fashion. We'll do the interpretation. Don't worry about this trouble of going to a constitutional amendment. We got it covered right here in the court. That's how I would frame that debate. Yeah. I, I think in some ways my, my reaction to the privacy right um, uh, argument uh, just a, li a little bit different in the sense that I, I think that in some ways the legacy of the privacy right, uh, as especially as it's embodied in this decision in Roe v. Wade, I, I, do th I also think it's problematic primarily because in some ways the argument has been uh, in some ways both incoherent uh, among those who support of the reasoning of Roe v. Wade, as well as those who are critical. I think that both sides are, uh, the, 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 the fallout from the, from the privacy right is in some ways it's made, uh, in some ways both sides of our jurisprudence are at least kind of the left and the right, both incoherent, I think, uh, on the uh, issue of the role of the court. So let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. Um, so the thing is, the privacy right as it's developed in Griswold v. Connecticut and then in Eisenstadt v. Baird, had one clear purpose, and that was to, to develop a, a right uh, that could be protected in particular circumstances without having to resort to the uh, due process clause of the 14th Amendment. In other words, could, is there a way that we could protect these social rights, like the right to abortion uh, or uh, uh, privacy in marriage, like in terms of contraception, without going back to that Lochner decision in 1908, where we were also protecting people's right to make a contract and striking down uh, maximum hours and minimum wage laws? And so the, the, the thing is, is, in other words, the question was, can we have some substantive due process rights without having all of the substantive due process rights? And I think that that's led to a, a problem in, uh, on the, for the supporters of Roe v. Wade, and that is, is that they want 
those social rights, but not the other rights. And it leads to uh, easy, makes them a sort of easy target uh, for hypocrisy on the issue of individual freedom and liberty, especially when it comes to uh, the issue of substantive due process and the 14th Amendment's protections on liberties. On the other hand, for conservatives, uh, conservatives uh, who oppose the abortion uh, decision in Roe v. Wade um, don't uh, ha have, have argued that the problem is substantive due process, and if we could get back to where states get to make the decisions on the abortion issue, then we'd be fine, which in some ways also leads to a, an argument that that's contradictory because Ultimately, if you really think that this is a life, then it doesn't really matter whether the state, uh, whether the state is protecting it or the uh, federal judiciary is protecting it, right? It's, it still uh, would constitute infanticide. And the more coherent or consistent argument would simply be to say, look, uh, the fetus is a person under the 14th Amendment's description of a person, and therefore it should be protected by the court. And you would find very, very few uh, conservatives or opponents of Roe v. Wade that would be willing to argue that. But without that, I, I think that you end up sort of with easy, both sides become kind of easy targets of the charge of hypocrisy or inconsistency um, uh, subsequent to Roe. That's, Let me just that's great. And that actually, David, uh, both what you just said and what John was pointing out, I think helped to uh, address a question. Um, I'm trying to remember who submitted it. But the question about how the court today might go about yeah, deciding yeah. a similar case. Yeah, could um, I, 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 Chris, could I pick please. up there? Cause I, and let me piece together that question with another question that came up earlier. Somebody said, well, what's left of the road trimester framework? I think that was one of the very original questions that one of the participants posed. And so we've rightly been focusing on road, the decision really given it a close reading as, as, it, as it bears a close reading. But what's happened since Roe, and where do we stand today? And, 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 and one might even say what might happen if Neil Gorsuch is, is, is confirmed to the court or if there's other changes in the court, where might the court go? It's a lot to say, but let me just start off with a few comments on that. First thing to be said is, is that the spirit of Roe does still live today. And that is, I would say, the main holding of Roe is, is that states may not pro prohibit abortion prior to the point of fetal viability. That still survives. Now, the trimester framework itself would no longer be the, the key way of working through that, in part, as Dave was mentioned, because medical advances mean that fetal viability actually comes slightly before the end of the trimester. So in a series of decisions, most notably the Casey decision in 1992, which really pieced things together concerning a Pennsylvania series of Pennsylvania laws, that that holding of law, what the part of Roe that survives is states, you can still pass various restrictions. You could, say, pass a parental consent provision and still be consistent with law. That is, require minors to, to, uh, to notify their parents before they secure an abortion. You could still have a reasonable length waiting period law. At the time, they said you could have 24 hours between first signaling the intent to get an abortion and then actually going forward. You could even have reasonable informed consent laws, as they said, where states will say you must be provided the following information about fetal development or about other matters. All those, the Supreme Court said, could be generally consistent with Roe. But what you can't do, what you still can't do, is you cannot prohibit abortion prior to the point of fetal viability. Now, as one of the participants' questions, one of the questions just came up, said, they said, well, aren't states testing the boundaries of that in recent times? 
aren't we seeing states beginning to pass? We've already had, had a number of states say, well, abortions can be banned at the 20-week period, or some states will say abortions will be banned in that state even earlier than that. And then, as one of the participant questions say, some states will say there's a 72-hour waiting period between first signaling the intent to get an abortion otherwise. And then Texas goes back in the the Supreme Court last year, said, well, abortions must only be performed by individuals that would have hospital admitting privileges and in the following sort of situations. At that case, the whole women's health case last year, the Supreme Court by a five to three decision said, actually, some of what Texas is doing is going farther than it's allowed to do. It's violating our principle holding that you may not place an undue burden on a woman's ability to secure an abortion pre Beetle viability. If you had to sum up what where we stand in abortion law today, that would be the catchphrase. You, states may not uh, uh, impose an undue burden on a woman's ability to obtain an abortion prior to fetal viability. Texas, the Supreme Court ruled last summer, went a little bit too far in that sense with part of its particular provisions. So that's a that's a start us off thing. Where do we taking us from Roe in 1973 up to the current day? That's a very brief summary of some of the high points. No, that was that was really helpful, John. That was great. That was Michelle's great question, by the way. Yeah. About uh, the the states sort of chipping away around the edges at Roe and, and whether that's consistent or not with the current uh, jurisdiction or uh, 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 jurisprudence on this. Uh, by the way, Ohio just passed uh, the Ohio legislature passed the the heartbeat bill. I see. And the governor did not approve that, uh, did not sign that portion of the bill into law. But so again, you see you see the states sort of trying to, to, to sort of do whatever they can within what they consider to be the legal framework or the legal limitations imposed by Roe. But and the can I just, the sense is some of them are pushing it a little bit. Yeah. And Chris, I just I don't want to monopolize this, but just to take out one point from there, some of the reasons that states are testing these matters, 72-hour waiting periods, or as you say, the, the, the heartbeat bill, is because they're always aware that the composition of the Supreme Court determines whether or not some of these uh, bills will eventually prevail or not. Yes, they get tested in federal district courts and the federal appellate courts, but all eyes are clearly on the U.S. Supreme Court. And they say, well, what if some of these uh, these laws got up to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2018 or 2019? And so people take a look at what current Supreme Court justices have said on abortion cases in recent times. And that's why, as we get ready for the nomination hearings for Neil Gorsuch to begin, there will undoubtedly be plenty of discussion at his hearings. Where do you stand on abortion? And he will do his best, as as judge, judicial nominees are expected to do, to not answer that particular question on a case that come before him. But that's what people are saying is, what might the composition of the court look like a year or two from now? And might some of these laws that states are passing as testing, that's a way of ultimately getting these before the U.S. Supreme Court and perhaps leading to different decisions that have been given in prior years. And I mean, that also too, uh, I mean, the, the subsequent fallout of the, of the uh, abortion cases too, I mean, does, first of all, it's, it's, it's politicized the court uh, a lot more. And it's, it's be, Partly, it's not because the perception, uh, the, the simple perception is, is that the court is deciding uh, major social issues, but the way that they're deciding these cases tends to be unclear. So, you know, if you look at Roe v. Wade, I mean, yes, there's a, a tendency among legal scholars to look at the trimester framework of, um, of black men that tried to sort of, you know, weave this middle ground um, to, to kind of mock it as being, you know, just sort of a, a, 
an a, a arbitrary assertion, right? That there's, you know, that, that this is what has to happen in each of these trimesters. But I mean, there's some uh, compared to the contemporary standard of the undue burden, the trimester framework had an incredible amount of clarity. Now, with the undue burden standard, it's I mean entirely subjective. So, you know, like if you look at the Texas case recently, right? The rule, the Texas put uh, put on the following rules, right? That if you run an abortion clinic, you've got to have the same. Uh, standards as a amb ambulatory surgical center, um, and number two is that you uh, any uh, one practicing abortions uh, has to have admitting privileges to the local uh, hospitals. And the argument of the state was, well, this is within our police powers in terms of health and safety. Well, that was struck down, but on the other, I mean, that was uh, those regulations were struck down as an undue burden. But parental notification was uh, in the Casey case, right, for uh, minors was upheld. And it's very hard to tell well, what's, what is the guiding standard for undue burden. And it seems, the answer simply seems to be it depends on who's on the court. And could I just pick up, I saw the most recent question from a participant said, right. I've heard that the question was, I've heard the next appointee to the court might overturn Roe v. Wade. How is this possible? And this, this dovetails very much with our current discussion. When, when it's always hazardous to kind of um, read uh, count up votes on the Supreme Court uh, because a case comes up and you have to assume the justices react to a particular case. That being said, the current understanding would be that uh, Justice Thomas uh, uh, Justice Alito, perhaps Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, would have serious difficulties with some of the Roe versus Wade framework in that sense. And so suppose Justice Gorsuch is confirmed to the bench. That could lead on the court for justices who would have serious questions about the Roe jurisprudence going forward. So, but th that would just be for justices who would raise questions. What the question of the participant takes is, suppose a just Ruth just, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg stepped down. Suppose a Justice Anthony Kennedy stepped down. It was a vote to overturn some of those Texas prohibitions in the 2016 case. What would happen if there was a fifth justice who might be having serious questions about Roe versus Wade? And the key point I would think that I would want to stress here is what would that mean to revisit Roe versus Wade? What it would mean would be, it could take various formulations, it would mean that states would, in many cases, have much more discretion to introduce Texas-style regulations, whether Texas-style regulations are the kind that were before the court in 2016 or other matters. So there's sometimes some uncertainty, oh, to overturn Roe versus Wade would mean that abortion would now be illegal in all 50 states. To the contrary, that'd be highly surprising. To, to revisit and even kind of overturn Roe versus Wade would likely mean states, you had much discretion prior to 1973 in regard to how you regulated abortion. Um, states, you now get a lot more discretion that you have. That's what that would mean, and that would be the road that you would have to likely get before you would even get to a situation where Roe versus Wade could be reconsidered. Point, and of course, President Trump has mentioned I, nothing like the party like mentioning President Trump. So, uh, President Trump, he would like the court. He would like to see the court return. I'm trying to think of how he put it. Return questions of abortion laws to the state. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's, that's exactly what how he put it. Yeah, and so that my would takeaway, be. I'm sorry, my, my takeaway from, from what I'm getting from you both today is what, what would that mean? Well, as you just put it, John, it means 
greater latitude on the part of the states to do to impose certain kinds of requirements and limitations, the type that Michelle was mentioning in her question, right? Waiting periods, notification requirements. And would it also mean that the states would have greater latitude with regard to determining when, uh, you know, at what point of life becomes viable or when, at, at what at what stage uh, an abortion can take place, right? Am I understanding this correctly? That, that is my understanding. So not okay. just the restrictions on where you can perform abortions, uh, waiting period laws, but it could go much further than that, would likely would go much further, and would say states, you could decide, will abortions be permitted and prohibited, um, you know, after 12 weeks of pregnancy? After six weeks has been considered in some states, such as North Dakota, you mentioned the Ohio law earlier. That's what, when states are passing these testing types of laws, they're in some ways anticipating the possibility that several years from now, a differently constituted court could return to them that discretion to make those very contentious decisions, not have them made by justices on the Supreme Court, but made by the legislatures and people in states deciding for themselves what they think the proper resolution of that would be. That would be interesting <laughs> to be sure if that happens. Well, uh, we've actually come to the end of our time. That has actually just flown by. I didn't realize we were so close to the end. So um, I want to thank you both for joining us today and uh, helping us all think through this complicated case and, of course, sensitive case, a sensitive topic, but, but thinking it through very, very clearly from a, from a really interesting constitutional perspective, especially I've learned a lot from both of you, and I, I thank both of you very much for, for your time and your thoughts this morning. Yeah, thanks for hosting us, Chris. Yeah, it was a great discussion. Again. Uh, and thanks to the question, thanks to the people who joined us and for submitting questions. There's some great questions there. We didn't get to all of them, but that's sort of the nature of the, of the thing. But uh, great questions today. Um, I, I forgot to mention earlier that you will uh, receive an email with a link that you can follow to receive a certificate of participation for today. So, so keep a, an eye out for that email with that link. If you, if you need that certificate, you should get that within the next week. Uh, our next Saturday webinar will be April 8th, uh, same time, 11 o'clock Eastern, on Regents of the University of California. We'll be back with Peter Myers of the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and Scott Yenner of Boise State University, and I hope to see you all then. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.